everybody. Welcome to What's the Point Podcast here with Eric Weiner. And uh, I'm joined in the studio today with Pastor Lawrence and Pastor Danny. What's uh, up? Just want to give a give a shout out to uh, to uh, Erica and Joy for last week being with us and, yeah. and just helping us try to try to navigate some of these hard questions that, that we're working through. Um, and so this is this is part two for us. This is part two of our Q and R, our question and response time. Uh, pretty intentional about calling it question and response rather than question and answer. Don't well, now you? that Lawrence is here, he has all okay. the answers. So, so, so he's, all definitive answers. Yeah, right? he's he's pretty much yeah. the Bible. Uh, Q and R slash A yeah. with Lawrence. Um, yeah, and so uh, as a church, we we've been navigating through in, in our Bible Bible reading plans. We we've been navigating some some pretty hard passages, some pretty hard uh, books of the Bible. Uh, just there, there's plenty of plenty of yeah. uh, challenging things to, to work through as as you go through the the beginning of, of the Bible and, and reading through Moses's uh, books, and then you get into Joshua, Judges, and and so forth. Even and, and First Thessalonians, we threw that in the Bible right, plan this right. week. So we got the man of lawlessness. Just to mess know. with you guys. Yeah, so, just to, yeah. No, we're reading through the bible this is good stuff and you guys are asking uh, lots of questions we, we thank you for the questions that were submitted uh last week and and also that are submitted this week and uh we're, we're going to try to tackle those this morning but guys before before we jump into all of these challenging hard questions that that require mdivs uh which i'm going to lean PhDs. on you guys for because i don't i don't have an mdiv but um yeah lawrence just, just gonna start with you here uh as as the brainchild, as the, as the one of the pioneers of the author uh, and pioneer Sushioki. Sushioki. What what's your favorite role? Uh, my what's claim to fame. Uh, favorite role of Sushioki is the bull by the beach with avocado extra masago. That's the way right. to go. Can a normal person order that too, or you can. just you have to be the guy who basically started the restaurant? You, you can you can order that a bull by the beach. You say, listen, I need to add a little avocado, add a little masago, and you're good to go. So if you walk like, in, it's like say, the secret menu. Yeah, you the, know how it is. The secret you gotta, you gotta menu. be in the know. The Pastor Lawrence special, yeah. or you just gotta whisper. You say the hawk flies at midnight, and they, they hook you up. Uh-huh. <laughs> the hawk fly, flies at midnight. You heard it here first on the Waypoint. What's the point podcast? So See, that, benefits to listening. As, as you're trying to to answer that question, I mean you. you you answer that question pretty quickly, but is it is it not like trying to choose between like who's your favorite child? You know, didn't you like? Make, no, 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 just kidding. All these, didn't you make all the? No, no, no. That is my favorite right now. It rotates. Okay, it rotates. Okay. It switches it up. You know, I have a favorite child, a different one each day. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you should talk to your wife about that. Yeah. One, but, all right, um, we're, uh, but, any counselors out there? Marriage counseling, I mean, parent you know, counseling. If Hudson's paying attention better one day, or just size sweeter. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, so. Let, Let's pivot for a second. Here's a question for all of all of us. Um, what are you guys watching right now? What are we watching right now? I, I know I know something Lawrence is watching because he's singing a lot as he walks around anywhere I see him. My name is Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> all right, what was Disney that about? I, I've seen I've seen Hamilton three times. This has been out since July third, so um, okay. it's two and a half hour long. So having watched it three times, it's a good amount of time in my life I've spent on Hamilton. Okay. I mean, I, I saw somewhere that was saying if it, if the actors in Hamilton talked at a normal rate, the show would be like four and a half hours. So think right. about it in, that, in that perspective. That is a that's wonderful way to look at it. I'm also watching uh, some reruns of Parks and Rec on uh, Netflix. That's a, mm. an enjoyable comedy for me. Okay. I think for me, uh, Isaac, my son, is kind of a... Uh, 
movie file. I don't know what to. There's cinephile, cinephile. Yeah, I wanted to say cinephile, but that means you love China, and I people used to call me a cinephile, but a cinephile okay. is uh, <laughs> every day. S I N O is the old word for China. So a cinephile loves China, but a cinephile like my son Isaac. So every once in a while he'll say, "Hey, you want to watch this classic?" He's really into Christopher Nolan movies, so we watched Inception and Dunkirk, and he's trying to work. Through the uh, the Has he list, seen Memento. He hasn't seen Memento yet. He and so we're working through those. And then as a family, our family is at the age where my kids are teenagers now. Derek's almost a teenager, preteen. We're watching The Wonder Years, which was my favorite show yes. growing up. Probably my wow. favorite TV show of all time. Two years ago at Christmas, uh, my family got the DVD set for us, and just just a great show. It's this '80s show. I mean, an early '90s show set in the 60s he actually graduates the same month that i graduated high school so it kind of i mean the the show was aired at the same time so it's been fun to do that enjoy that with my family nice. and kind of yeah that that's been that's been fun so yeah we, you, Eric? we uh we actually just finished watching parks and rec for the first time so i'd, I'd never seen it for the first time for the first okay. time wow. uh, we just I, I was actually trying to figure out how to watch because they had a since COVID's happened, they, they had a, a special come out. It was like a free special on YouTube that I, I wanted to see. Yeah. I didn't see it. I was trying to figure out how to watch mm-hmm. it, and it was like not available. So I was really bummed, but I, um, I thought it was a really good ending. So I was really interested to see what they did for a, for a, a COVID episode, um, considering they were doing like years into the future, how, how they do it. Like, obviously, they didn't predict 2020 to be what, what it's been. Um, <laughs> But something else, uh, in a previous podcast, something that was, was recommended was this show called The Chosen. Yeah, I was going to say, my um, family's really enjoyed The so Chosen. We, excellent, excellent series. We've been watching that. We're, I think we're like halfway through. It's like eight episodes. Um, and it's, it's been re- like the, the creativity that, that goes into it has been really, really interesting to just capturing this time period, um, first century Judaism, uh, being ruled by Rome and, and seeing this like, story that they put together with with uh simon peter and and jesus uh coming into the picture is just been yeah it's been really really compelling also on my list i need to watch so, yeah, i've, I've enjoyed it and they, just just as a disclaimer out there when we say we're watching a show we're not recommending that every episode of that show lines up with our christian faith right. we understand that most of these shows that we recommended other than the chosen were written by non-Christians. Uh, they do give us a good glimpse into the society and the world that we live in. But whenever we say something as leaders of the church, we're not fully endorsing every episode, every line. We're acknowledging that that there is common grace, so we can laugh at some of the jokes. But there are also some jokes in these shows or some, some themes that we would disagree with as believers. Mm-hmm. And we, we want to challenge all of you to use discernment on that. So just so you know, we're not saying, yeah. But The Chosen is written by Christians, and even that is not, it has extra biblical themes, assuming, you know, just using some of the Jewish context of the time. So, yeah, good question, Eric. Yeah, and so, uh, guys, as we jump into some of these questions that that our church members sent in to us, um, I just want to keep on the forefront for us, keeping this in in view, is that we want to remember the the reason why we are learning the Old Testament is to, to understand the gospel, to understand uh, we, we believe that uh, that the Old Testament is is revealing to us something about who Jesus is. That, that it's, it's it's creating this anticipation for His coming, uh, this coming Messiah, and, and and we believe that we can now. I mean, Jesus taught us this. This is how Jesus understood 
the Old Testament. This is how I understood the word is, is that it's pointing to him and it's pointing to his coming. And, and, and now we're looking ahead and um, yeah, with, we, can't, with we can't stress that. enough that every early church meeting, the Old Testament was their Bible. Like they were right. reading Isaiah and, and the Pentateuch and Deuteronomy and Psalms, you know, as they were preaching the good news of Jesus. So, yeah. And, and so, go ahead. And I love the idea that we have questions. You know, we want to question what we read. We don't right. want to just read it and not really evaluate it, not stew on it, not meditate on it, not let it sink in and just be like, oh, that's what it says. We want to question it. We want to be and do it in a safe place in the body, um, in the church, so that we can ask each other and dive in together. So mm-hmm. thankful mm-hmm. that we guys, you guys are all asking questions. Yeah, thanks for asking questions. Yeah. Even the New Testament letters themselves oftentimes are answers to questions. Like Paul and some of the other authors, sometimes they're addressing issues that they need to address because the people aren't asking the questions. But many times, the, we're hearing the answers to the questions that the church had about how to be gospel people, how to be kingdom people, how to interpret, live in this con- this cross cultural context that they lived in. Yeah, and, we'll, and, and we we typically ask questions. Be, it, it, there's this connotation of doubt, as if there's something that we don't know, or, or there's reason to to question it. Um, there, there's concern maybe or uh, or wanting to challenge push back but uh, I think I think even in reading the Bible just just understanding too and keeping in view that it's good for us to to ask questions in, in a way to meditate on it and to, to, to ponder and even even to come underneath the authority of God's word and to, to let it question us to let it search us to search our hearts and so um, I think that's another another thing to keep in mind is, as we are asking questions the bible is inviting us to ask questions and, and to consider who who is god and what's he doing and, and how how are we involved in this story and and so mm-hmm. uh just jumping right in here guys uh, w- why would the generation entering the promised land with joshua not have been circumcised well <laughs> what is circumcision lawrence will you explain <laughs> the the ceremony to us because for the i'm just kidding i just feel like it's so mean that yeah. um i mean circumcision as a baby is much easier concept to, yeah. to stomach than yeah. circumcision as an adult. tell that to my wife circumcising okay. yeah. she, she is is a struggle yeah and I, I told her you, you don't know what it's like so just calm down <laughs> and but. even thinking about circumcision i mean it's it becomes a big issue in the new testament and the letters and we'll we'll talk about that as we talk about the jerusalem council but why does so this question is basically why when joshua is bringing the second generation the first generation dies in the wilderness the the last person dies the only two left are joshua and caleb even moses and miriam and aaron have all died as joshua is bringing them in many of them are not circumcised we don't know if it's like 50 percent 20 percent 80 percent we just know that many of them aren't and the question was why are they not and Probably the the most basic answer is because they were traveling through the wilderness and they were in the desert for 40 years. So if you happen to be born at a time when things, you know, they, they didn't do it, they just didn't do it. So there's part of the generation was, part wasn't. And also in this preparation, um, it, it's combined with the idea of the Passover. So the story where Joshua, they celebrate the Passover, it's the time of year of the Passover. But in order to celebrate the Passover, Joshua wants all of them to be circumcised, which is the sign of the covenant of Abraham. So why were some of them not just because they were in this transition period and God was 
purifying them and, and preparing them to enter in to be his people. And the Canaanite people would not have been circumcised. So this would have been in a very clear way to distinguish them. And one, the biggest thrust of the latter parts of the Pentateuch into Joshua is that you're a set apart people. And God has compassion on all people, but you're a set apart people. And the Canaanites are practicing detestable practices, including child sacrifice. And there's even a law in you know Leviticus or Deuteronomy where it says, when you get there, don't burn your children in a sacrifice because that's what the people are doing, you know. So, so there, God is trying to set his people apart. So that's why uh, that he has, has them all circumcised before they enter into the land. Um, any other thoughts on this, guys? Or? Okay. No, I think, I think it's a great, uh, great summary of what's happening here and, and just the, the transitional period that's, that's going on. Yeah, and um, one more thought on this. So in light of this, right now, all of us, feel like our children are in a unique situation with COVID. And Erica, my wife, actually brought this up in our staff meeting this morning, that parents are feeling a lot of anxiety. Can they trust God? Because things aren't normal. So they lived in Egypt, and that was their normal. Then God pulls them out, and they're in this new normal. They have this tabernacle. Can we trust God? So I think part of the story is that that generation had to learn to trust God with their children. And these are the children who grew up in that generation. So... I think we can even glean from this this idea that circumstances may not always be ideal. They may not always be what we want, but God is always working. God is always faithful to his covenant promise. That's good. That's good. Yeah, that's a good word. Um, well, moving on, guys. Uh, I, I love this next question, especially because of the source of the question, um, is, is from one of our uh, Bridge 35 students. Bridge thirty five uh, is our it is, uh, third through fifth grade third ministry? through fifth grade um, third through fifth graders uh, in Waypoint Kids and uh, this this question comes in and says our son would like some information on giants <laughs> yes giants absolutely I would too uh, he he's a lover of folklore myths mythology so his mind was blown when he when we read about giants in the Bible so. Me too. Get, I'm get, a lover of help. You know, we're talking about like the Nephilim, or uh, like, the, and this or, is particularly the, about they, the giants that giants they in, encounter in Numbers uh, when Caleb and and Joshua yeah. and the ten other spies. They send enter. out the spies to, to go check out the land, and they come back with a report, and they say there, there's giants in the land. There's mm-hmm. there's these, uh, and and most of them are afraid. They're like, I don't know. I don't I don't think this this might not be for us. So what what do you guys think here? Well, you know, I just love this. I love this. when I, I use examples like this often when I talk about how cool the Bible is. You know, the Bible mm-hmm. has so much more in it. You know, it has romance. It has um, it has adventure. It has fighting. I, well, this is one of my examples I love to talk about. It has giants, and it has sword fighting. It has, like, it's like the Princess Bride. It has awesome stuff in it. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my other stories I'll talk about, it has a Leviathan in one section of the Bible, and then another section has, like, David's mighty men who are so willing to fight, like, these ultimate crazy warrior stories. Like, you just kind of, like... A stuff out of myth, you know, and I'm like, I'm like, yes, the Round Table mixed in with Thirteenth Warrior, mixed in with Lord of the Rings all together. So, whoever wrote this question, I'm with you. I feel you, and I love this question. When it talks about the giants, I think there's two different sections that they're often referring to: the Nephilim in mm-hmm. Genesis chapter six, and then this is referring to specifically because where we're at the Bible reading plan, the giants in Genesis, where the Joshua uh, sent the spies in and they saw this, the the people of the land, and they were scared. And so the question is, are these, what, 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 what is being referred to as giants? Well, most scholars believe, and I, I'm one of them, is that this is more of a um, hyperbole. 
mm-hmm. in regards to the literary device to really express the fear that the people had when they saw these people. They were basically like giants. You imagine a, a Muggsy Bogues, who's a five foot three in the NBA, next to a Shaquille O'Neal, who's a seven foot two. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay. if that's your comparison point, that is a massive difference. That's an absolute giant to you. You know, and it's even more so, specifically during that time period, physical strength. You know, right now, physical strength doesn't quite mean as much, per se, in regards to kind of daily interactions on the street. Almost more economic might kind of mm-hmm. create such up as a giant now. But physical strength back then, you know, when it's a little more survival of the fittest, a warrior, agrarian, slash... Kind each of, of these city-states only had, you know, a couple hundred fighting men in each one. So right, more didn't take warlord much, states. Yeah, it didn't take much to... It, it just took a little, a few really powerful guys to kind of conquer the whole... A whole other army of another city state, right? Yeah. Especially in times where there was a lot of champions fighting on behalf of city states as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it just meant a lot more. If someone was that much more physically more intimidating, for example, I often joke about joke about this, but if I had to go into a ring and have to go fight somebody like a Brock Lesnar or mm-hmm. or, or or the or the Rock. Yeah, he's a giant, and I'm gonna be so intimidated. Yeah. You know, this imagine even more so that during. This, t- this day and age. So it really was hyperbole that the people looked and they saw these people were like, they were bigger, they were stronger, they were more prepared for war than they were. And so they were radically afraid. They looked like giants to them. Now, what about the comparison to the Nephilim? Like, and I think that was the key point. Is that that's what they, they probably used the same language and same wording because to them, the Nephilim was almost, almost mythical at this point. It's been hundreds of years, yeah. thousands of years since the mm-hmm. Nephilim. And yeah. there's this, they've heard stories and tales of the Nephilim. So we mentioned hyperbole last week and in, in how God uses it in, in the Pentateuch and Joshua to the the saying that they're descendants of the Nephilim from Genesis chapter 6. They're not saying they're actual, they're like a, kind of a, a spiritual descendant, not even a spiritual, like a, the idea, mm-hmm. the fear that they had of them. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not saying that they're direct descendants. Most scholars would not say that at all, but they are the same idea. That they're these it's almost larger than life characters that are that seem scary, seem impossible. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like the connotation of it. You know, the the idea if I make a statement like, oh, those guys are, those guys are like, you know, the giants of old. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the Nephilim, if you if you do look at the old te- at Genesis, and we we've already kind of covered Genesis in some previous discussions, but we don't really know what they are. They either were the line of Seth, and that's why it's calling them the sons of God. But most scholars think that can't be the accurate interpretation but some do they're actual angels that like demonic angels that bred with humans which some scholars say could be a possibility and there's even a reference in second peter and jude that might mean that that's what that's talking about or some some people may say it's it's a little bit of hyperbole meaning they were very strong human men who were under extreme demonic influence so it was there was a demonic angel component to them but it wasn't a through breeding it was through like influence like we would argue that adolf hitler was directly influenced by demonic you you can't commit that evil without being under the the direct influence of demonic people so we don't really know what the nephilim were we do know Mm -hmm. they were physically Mm -hmm. big and they were powerful and my leaning towards is actually a combination of those viewpoints actually i do believe there's a line of seth 
to show up as Latin men, but they were also big warlords at the time, mm-hmm. under influence of evil, of kind of evil lineage, lineage, evil influence, if you will. Mm-hmm. So it is really, in my mind, the line of Seth that it was being referred to were also warlords, powerful, and we know that they're big and powerful because that's how they refer to even in Joshua later. In the line of them, they call them giants, mm-hmm. you know? So it really was this idea that they had of being physical, imposing figures. But I believe with the line of Seth. Mm-hmm. And my final thought on this Joshua passage, this is one of the coolest passages in the Bible plan, reading plan for me, uh, is the, the account of Caleb. Caleb's just such a cool dude. So Caleb is one of the explorers, one of the 12 with Joshua. And he comes back, and, there are, and he, they, the other 10 are like, they don't even talk about all the other good stuff. They don't even talk about mm-hmm. most of the people right. in the land are just normal height, normal size armies. They only focus in on the giants. Mm-hmm. They only focus in on the thing that's scary. They, they saw many different tribes, many different city-states, but they're like these uh, you know, descendants of An- Anak, they're huge. So we got to stay away from them. And, and then the people feared. But here's what Caleb says. It says, but this is from the New Living uh, in Numbers 13. It says, but Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go once to take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the people are like, we can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. And the people were afraid, and they didn't. And only Caleb and Joshua get to enter the land because they weren't afraid. But I love Joshua 15. It says, The Lord commanded Joshua to assign some of Judah's territory to Caleb, son of Jephunneh. Caleb was given the town of Kareth Abra, which is Hebron. And Hebron is actually where Moses meets, I mean, where Abraham meets God. It's where Sarah is buried. Mm-hmm. And it says, Which had been named after Anak's ancestors. Caleb drove out the three groups of Anakites, the descendants of Sheshai, uh, Imam, and Talmai, all the sons of. So, 85 year old Caleb and his men, by the power of God, drive them out without any problems. It doesn't even say there was a struggle. It doesn't mention, it, it doesn't even have to brag. It just says they did it. Sometimes the Bible, the, the authors brag. They're like, yeah. we. It doesn't even brag. It just says, it's, it's just a fact. The confidence that God gave Caleb in God, not in Caleb's own ability, mm-hmm. in numbers comes true. And the Bible doesn't even have to brag about it. These giants were run out of the land and 85-year-old Caleb and his army was able to defeat them by the power of, the, of God. And it's, it's cool. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think that's, Caleb, that should encourage us. It's yeah, good. no, that's, that's really good. That's really helpful. Thanks, guys. Um, so I, I hate to inform you guys at, at this point, but uh, those were actually our, our softball questions, <laughs> if, if you could call them those. Um, so kind of moving moving forward here, it's it's going to be some uh, some heavy stuff, some heavy lifting for us. But uh, our our next member who sent in a question, they said, I I understand that marriage with multiple spouses in the Bible is never praised, and the examples usually show poor outcomes. It's a great observation, um, but out of all the Levitical laws. Why is there no law against having more than one spouse? Yet there are seemingly less important laws about things like clothing material and hair and, and other things. <laughs> great, great observation. Great here. question. I mean, it's a great question. Wow. See, I got these initial questions last week, so I was the one who did the prep work on the polygamy question. So I'll be honest, guys out there, I, I knew some about this, but I had to do some research and I had to do some praying and I had to go back and look at the text itself, the, the scriptures themselves and, and let the, the text speak to me. 
I had to look at some commentary, look at what other pastors and Bible scholars have said. I had some conversations. And when it comes to polygamy, this is one of the more difficult um, things that we find in the Bible, particularly that, that David, the man after God's own heart, mm. commits p- polygamy in a way that he wouldn't need to. Like, he didn't need to have all those wives. And Solomon, his son, does it in an extreme way. And the Pentateuch itself says when you have a king, the king shouldn't have many wives. So they're directly mm-hmm. violating God's law. And I believe that's why the kingdom, God divides the kingdom. And that's the beginning of the end of the, of the kingdom. Uh, but polygamy itself. So why is it not directly forbidden in the law of Moses? Well, all scholars would agree that it's Genesis forbids polygamy, says for polygamy is a bad idea. The first mm-hmm. murderer, sinful man, the descendant of Cain, Lamech in Genesis 4, it, it highlights the first thing he does. This murderous guy, this son of Cain, he, he takes two wives. Mm-hmm. So he goes against God's original command. But why does God allow polygamy to exist in the law of Moses? Why is there not a specific law of Moses? I think that's the question yeah. that forbids it. And the Christian answer, and this goes back to even Jewish teaching and Jewish tradition, is that polygamy was useful at times of war for childless widows. Um, it, God allowed it to be part of, of, their, of the law of Moses and, and their civil society because there would have been times when it needed to be addressed. And there's two passages in the actual law of Moses that address it. Like I said, it's addressed multiple times in Genesis negatively. But in, in uh, the law of Moses, it's addressed once where it talks about kings should not. Uh, this would be in Deuteronomy 17, 17. It says the kings, the future kings should not take many wives. And then also, uh, I don't have the exact reference, but there's a time when it's, it talks about if a brother's husband, if his, the, brother's, the husband's brother dies, then the, the wife that brother is obligated to take over the, the wife's family. So why it's allowed to exist, the general Christian answer is for that period of time, it was meant to protect the women. And particularly these small city-states, if they lost all the men in war, there, w- there needed to be a social structure that protected the women. By the time of Jesus, very few Jews were in polygamous marriages. They still did exist. Jesus himself says, we're going to go back to Genesis. He brings it back. He says that he talks about divorce, and he says that even in divorce, uh, Moses gave you these laws because of your hardened hearts. He says we're going to go back to the original God's original intent for marriage, and Paul affirms it. And what would polygamy look like today? Well, first of all, in some places in the world, polygamy still exists, mm-hmm. and there have actually been missionaries who have been in places like some tribes in Africa, and as people became believers in Christ. They didn't say get rid of all your wives because that man would have been, that would have been bad for those women. But they said, okay, by the second generation, your children shouldn't practice this. So it can be eliminated by the second generation. Also, the, for the, in the forbidding of elders being a man of more than one wife, most scholars would say that's talking about polygamy because it still existed at the time of Timothy and Titus when those, those things were, were issued. So, the final question is, it, it probably was God's grace. The final answer is it was God's grace, but Jesus and Paul make it clear. And in the modern church, orphans and widows, and Paul highlights singleness. Mm. He says in the new kingdom under the new covenant, we all take care of each other. So mm. that's my 
long, short answer to a very complicated question. But if you have more questions, if you, if, if you need more to know more, you can always ask one of us. We'd love to talk to you guys about this. But this is definitely one of the more difficult questions in the Bible. I think you entered it very well, Danny. I think one of the big things to understand about the Bible is that it doesn't speak about every single issue um, as clearly as often we want it to do, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it doesn't yeah. outright say certain things that we feel like it should say. Mm-hmm. It almost kind of generic in some things, very specific in other things. You mm-hmm. know, like, right. are they so specific about cloth and so specific about food when it's not specific at all about these other things like polygamy? Mm-hmm. I think what's beautiful about the Bible is understanding that the whole time the Bible is meant um, to exist in outside of just their culture. You know, it was meant for all of us in all cultures. So in, often in many areas, it had to be generic, trusting that the Spirit is going to guide us throughout generations mm-hmm. and throughout cultures. Yeah, and Jesus says in Matthew uh, nineteen eight, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And when Jesus talks about, uh, when Jesus actually, it's, the quote is from Genesis, and it's quoted again in Malachi, but... It, the man and woman become one flesh. So when Jesus talks about marriage, he goes back to Genesis. And there's a lot, as we learned about the Pentateuch, we learned that the law was a provisional law preparing us for the new covenant. So under the new covenant, obviously, polygamy, it's always been a bad idea, but it's never part of the new covenant. But in the new covenant, the good parts of polygamy, only the protection part, protection of all people have a family that carries on into the new covenant and there's so much family language so much mm-hmm. adoption language in the new testament that it's very very clear what it looks like for us today to be a family of god and that marriage isn't the ultimate way we're a fam- in the family of god we're ultimately in the family of god mm-hmm. because we're united with christ and we are a family together brothers and sisters in christ together yeah, I think there, there's a lot that we can, I mean, we at Waypoint, we talk a lot about family and being family, and we use a lot of familial language, and, and I think even still, there's there's a lot more we can still learn. I yeah. mean, we have we have much to learn about what it what it truly means. I mean, it's just like, as you're talking about it, Danny, just, just painting a beautiful picture of, of what the church can look like and, and how it functions together as as, as one, that it's uh, even even singleness, it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily promoting one over the other. Um, but I, I find the the passage in in Matthew where Jesus is I mean they're asking him like why if if the, if marriage is the ideal why did God permit divorce like why did why did Mo- Moses give instruction for that um, I think I think that's a, a relate like a related category of questions that that this kind of falls in line with of like why would God do it that way or why 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 did he instruct this why did why did he permit these things and and even just kind of bringing out the the hardness of hearts and and and, and mm-hmm. even bringing into per perspective uh our own sinful state but uh even as we as we frame it as we understand the institution of marriage from 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 a christian standpoint um jesus and and paul take us back to to genesis always too. Take us they back always to like that's that seems to be the foundation that's the foundational text for understanding uh what marriage is for or what it's supposed to look like. But then, then Paul seems to uh, help us. Even, he seems to not necessarily expand on it, but just, just talking about it as, as the mystery of marriage and how, how it's more fully revealed in, in the, the New Testament times uh, and how 
this union b- between man and woman is is pointing to it's it's painting this beautiful picture it's this beautiful sign saying look this is this is what Jesus's relationship with his bride the church looks yeah, like Ephesians 5 um that, that we you know we we go there so so often um, whenever we're talking about marriage, whenever we're, we're trying to think about what what is the purpose of marriage and what what it's doing, um, again, Paul Paul is very much rooting that in in Genesis two. He's going he's going back there just as as Jesus goes back there and saying, it, bring bringing this to, to light and, and and raising us up in this. I, I feel like that's that it, it's important to keep in view that uh, there there is something being revealed in that that, that uh, when when Paul talks about something being a mystery, he's not saying that. Uh, you know, we're like Sherlock Holmes trying to discover um, something that's hidden, but but that it's something that was previously obscured that is now more fully revealed yeah. and more more clearly seen. That um, I think even even knowing that, even though that's uh, kind of in the periphery to this question, I think that's that's also helpful in just understanding that mm-hmm. um, you know, as as we understand marriage today, we we understand it with it with. Uh, I think even clearer eyes than than maybe what those in, in the Old Testament who Moses was originally writing to understood about, um, and just kind of framing it. So, and we and we do want to always make this statement at Waypoint Church, and our par- parallel churches to us, similar churches have. If you go to their website, it says we're a family church, we're family friendly, and it, our culture has created, particularly our Christian culture that like the only right way to be part of the community is to be married in your 20s and have, you know, 2.3 kids and but that's not the new covenant. That's not the way God's mm-hmm. building his family. So at Waypoint, we want to push back against that. We we want families to be we want family, we want men and women to become married and to have children. That's part of who we are, but that's not the only way mm-hmm. that Christ is building his kingdom. There's mm-hmm. There's all kinds of different people that are part of Christ's kingdom, and we never want to come across that if you're not, if your family doesn't look like this, and your situation doesn't look like this, there's no place for you in the new covenant. We're actually the entire New Testament. Paul dedicates a whole chapter to singleness, um, a whole chapter in the in one of his letters. So we we want to continue to create that environment that we are a family together, and we are living life together as as the body of christ as christ you know as his bride yeah. and as the family of god yeah that's good um well a few weeks ago uh on this podcast we we talked specifically about the jerusalem council in acts 15 and and just this this gracious letter that you know that uh these these leaders and, and apostles in the church in jerusalem are, are trying to decide um something that they're conflicted on trying to make a decision about um how, how to teach and instruct the the gentile christians who are coming to faith who seem to have uh the the holy spirit empowering them and uh so so one of our members has asked this question about about the jerusalem council he said why were the provisions for eating certain foods included in the jerusalem council and why would they not apply to us as gentile believers or have they been overridden by other teachings uh, specifically, the, the provisions on eating food sacrificed to idols don't seem to align with Paul's teachings in 1 Corinthians 8 on it being okay to eat food sacrificed to idols, and all the food provisions in the Jerusalem Council also don't seem to align with Jesus' teachings in Matthew 15 and Mark 7 on what makes a person clean and unclean, although you could argue that that was in the c- context of the disciples not washing their hands, not necessarily eating certain foods. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of context there, a lot of... Uh, 
subtext to this question. Uh, complicated, nuanced, but yeah, what, what do you guys think about this? And just for reference, the Jerusalem Council is in Acts chapter 15. So mm-hmm. uh, if you're at home, you might want to, and you ha- you're not sure, you didn't listen to the last podcast, you could stop the podcast right now and, and just read uh, Acts chapter 15. Yeah, so is this, is it, essentially, is, there, is this contradicting? Is, is what's happening, like, why don't we follow that, for one? But then does this, what, what's taught here, does, does Paul seem to contradict that? And what he teaches in First Corinthians eight. So basically, so what the question is asking in Acts fifteen, it says, "Don't eat food sacrificed to idols." Right. In First Corinthians eight, it says, "It doesn't matter. The idols don't care. Idols aren't powerful. It doesn't matter." Yeah, these are like the the Roman. These are Greco-Roman idols, right. not Paul talking about idols of the heart. These are but physical he, idols in the marketplace. But here's the beautiful in the thing: Greco-Roman world. At the end of chapter chapter eight in First Corinthians, it says this though. In thirteen, it says, "Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall." So that's actually, they're not going against each other. It's just a different uh, audience, a different perspective that's being presented here. And what's, it's the same idea. It's the same heart. It's not contradictory. The idea is in Acts fifteen, what what the what the apostles are sending out to their Gentile people is just saying, "Hey, refrain from eating these things." It doesn't necessarily exactly say why. Mm-hmm. It just says refrain from eating them. Mm-hmm. We know earlier Peter saw the vision, right, of all the animals that were presented and they yeah. said, eat. So we know Peter, who's part of this team of apostles who are writing this letter, knows that it's okay to eat this meat. But why is he telling them, his people, not to eat at this time, to eat food sacrificed to idols? Well, Paul or Peter has made a decision along with the apostles that says, you know what, this is causing other people to stumble. So it's just, just easier at this point generically to say, hey, for you guys young believers— you Gentiles who are still struggling with the idea of what, it, what, it, what, it, what this idea of meat sacrificed to idols and the power of idols and your conscience is not strong enough in this and these decision making. Let me make it easier for you. Stay away. Mm-hmm. And what Paul is saying a little more advanced, he's saying a little, a little further on in time, is he's literally saying, guys, here's the deal. We said that, but that's because that was for you. You know, what, what really the heart of the matter is meat sacrificed to idols, it's still meat. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just meat is what it is. But but it's better. It's better that you don't eat it if it causes other people to stumble. The way I liken it to is, I feel like there was a big move in the church where it's like, uh, it's all about freedom, freedom. We're f- it's, forget legalism. I can do whatever I want. I'm so free. Jello shots at Bible study. Yeah, mm. stuff, stuff like that. And and my idea, I liken that to, you're free, yes, but how stupid can you be? It's like going to the Grand Canyon. Have you guys ever been to the Grand Canyon before? Have you guys ever been? I have not. No, I'm, I'm oh, not. It's on Grand, my list. Grand Canyon is amazing. But one of the things that blows my mind is there's no guardrails. Mm-hmm. Like I literally can just walk up to the very edge where it just gets a straight vertical drop, which scares me to death. I, I'm scared of heights, right? But there's, I've been with, I went with other people and there's like these like 16-year-old kids who are like running to the edge. I'm like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. I heard from the tour guy that they said every year a dozen people die. By just walking to the edge in the gust of wind, or they stumble and they just fall in. I'm like, why would you risk that? What are you doing? You know, that's what Peter's saying. Hey, people, my people, I don't want you to risk falling to the Grand Canyon. You know, so just don't eat it. You know, just don't eat it. That's why he's helping his young Gentile believers. And but Paul is saying, guys, you can you can go to the edge of the Grand Canyon, but if that's going to cause other people to go with you and cause them to possibly fall into the Grand Canyon, mm-hmm. why would you walk to the edge? Just stay away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's this beautiful like, combination that we have in the freedom of Christ. You know, we, we're we're free to say, you know what, meat is not going to make me impure. Just like it's what it says here in um, in Matthew fifteen and seven, Mark seven. Well, we put it into my body. That's not what's going to make me impure. Mm-hmm. But my heart, 
Because if, if I care for the people around, if I care for the people I'm leading, I care for the people who I'm ministering to, I, I need to do things that will help keep them from stumbling. Yeah, and I, specifically when it comes to so – it, it should be no surprise to us that – when it comes to Paul and Paul's writings, what he's doing, like he's being very strategic in, in what he's doing. Um, what shouldn't surprise us, but kind of does surprise me, is, is that uh, the people that Paul is writing to are, are kind of questioning his his authority and his leadership. So, so Paul is, it would be counterproductive for him to be like, here's what you should do and here's what you should not do. Let me let me just be uh, forthright. And, and and to be honest, wouldn't we like that? Wouldn't we, wouldn't we prefer it if... if Paul just spelled out, okay, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this, and do this. But but he doesn't he doesn't do that because for one they're 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 already kind of questioning his authority, um, which again like that like it's Paul right it's the right. apostle Paul they're questioning the, mm-hmm. the apostle Paul's authority but but then also the fact that Paul understands how the 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 human conscience works he understands how the the will works he understands you, you can't just you can't just force people into to doing things. I mean, they're they're already using logic in in First Corinthians eight in particular. They're they're using logic of uh, there's there's only one God. Like we we all believe in monotheism. Like we we know there's only one God. So that means by by that logic that there's no other gods. So there are no other idols. So we know this is not a problem. But rather than just giving them instruction, Paul Paul's trying to give them a new mindset. He's trying to to, to uh, to build up in them a, a, a posture of humility, uh, as you know, Lawrence, as you read earlier, uh, uh, giving them a, a way to think about like how how can I love my brother and sister in Christ who who are dealing with who 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 have come out of this context, whereas for them, like for you, maybe you're saying, okay, like me eating of this meat, I know this is not worshiping another idol, I know this is not giving into that, but for them, for for some Gentile believers in that church context, they. They were literally practicing in that. They were practicing in idol. They they were in those temples. They were eating meat sacrificed to idols, and, and that meat's being sold. Whatever's left over is being sold in in the marketplace. And so for them, it, it's not that clear of a of a, a distinction. Like for for them, they're they're still they're, talks about the maturity versus immaturity. They're, they're still grown up in their faith. Um, so. Paul doesn't Paul doesn't outright condemn them or, or say like no just just refrain from eating meat like just that would be the easiest thing to do so just do that to help other other people who are uh, who are new to this who are, who are stepping into this and I love the way Paul even talks about it like if it was me talking about this concept it would just be like oh they're struggling with the idea of eating meat towards idols and all this kind of stuff then just don't eat the meat but he's actually referring to these young believers who are, if they eat the meat, they're actually bringing harm to themselves, mm-hmm. which is weird. Like, how are they bringing harm to Because they so are entrenched in their previous belief systems mm-hmm. that they're like, am I bringing curse upon myself? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so what Paul's literally saying, even though they're wrong, even though it's not right, he's, right. he's telling truth, but he's still saying, guys, don't let them bring harm to themselves. You know, don't let them constantly rack themselves with guilt and judgment. And it's so weird. You're doing the, you know, like, don't make them walk to the edge of the cliff with you to the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. You and, know? And I, I think the Jerusalem Council has this other element, too, of stumbling with sin, Paul addresses. But then in, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, I be all things to all people so that I might save some. So Paul even thinks about his freedom in terms of, 
of the ability to share the gospel. And if you're a Jewish person in one of these Greco-Roman cities and you go to the assembly of Christians and you see some Greek people who are uncircumcised, who live a Greek life, and you're, you're dabbling, you're like, maybe Jesus is true. And then they're blatantly breaking Jewish law. They're not even trying to relate to you. It's going to be really, really hard for you to want to join this little assembly of Christians. So Paul's like, in the cities, you know, if you just don't do these few things, there's the stumbling from sin element, but there's also the being all things to all people. That's right. And, and mm-hmm. in international student ministry, one thing we found is there's about five or six countries in the world that we've had students that we've engaged with where dogs, like pet dogs, are considered disgusting. And a pet dog in your home is the absolute, like, it'd be the equivalent of, like, eating doggers. You know, like, mm-hmm. in, in some cultures, like, I mean, they just think that animals should be outside. And we actually had a, a, a student, and she was coming to our house, and we have a small dog, and we literally just put the dog away. I think one time we let the neighbor watch the dog to show love to that student because mm-hmm. we didn't want anything to be a hindrance of hospitality. Right. The same time, we have students from different countries where our dog is well, like they love coming to our house because they had a dog back home and coming to our house and petting our little dog in their lap makes them feel at home. Mm-hmm. So same dog, same thing. Sometimes we choose to put our dog away. Sometimes we choose to allow our dog to be part of the conver- part of the fellowship. And I think that's the essence of what Paul's saying. He's like, having a dog or not having a dog really isn't in the Bible. You know, eating meat or not eating meat. Now, it is is interesting that they talk about sexual immorality here. And Paul, there's probably some deeper nuances in the Jerusalem Council that we're Mm -hmm. missing. We... But as far as this meat stuff is concerned, we we can get the essence of both sides of why Paul is bringing this up by really looking at 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, that's kind of where I go with this. And I'm glad this Jerusalem Council passage is here yeah. because as someone who crosses cultures often, this has been really helpful to me and my colleagues. Like we actually go back to this a lot. An interesting thing, I, I lived in a part of the world where they actually eat blood and they... The church was divided over this. And I have actually had friends who say you can't eat a rare steak because of this. Mm. And other friends who say, this is ridiculous. Lawrence is looking at us like, what? Can't eat a rare steak. You can't eat a rare steak. So so I'm glad that we (laughs) have. do it for the people. I'm glad we have the whole council of scripture. We don't have the Jerusalem council on its own. We have the teachings of Jesus. We have the teachings of Paul. And we have first Peter. We have other places where we can see the bigger picture of how to live out the faith, live out our Christian walk. And we have the Holy Spirit. We have the whole council of scripture. And we have the Holy Spirit to say, in this setting, mm. in this circumstance, yeah. this is what it means to be all things to all people. This is what it means to be, to love your brother, to love your neighbor. This mm. is what it means to care. So in this situation, yeah, you, you just don't eat meat. You know, and which is for me, I'm like, oh God, please don't call me to that situation. But you know, right, like, right. <laughs> whatever it may be, you have, we have the whole council of scripture, but we also have the Holy Spirit to guide us. Yeah. So the final answer is Lawrence has to eat well done steaks. Mm. So that's that's what we're gonna hold him accountable. <sighs> to be all things to all people. No, say it ain't so. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, we need to close out this ep. So I uh, just want to give a special shout out. Thank you guys to everybody who sent in questions. Uh, we just want to encourage you to to keep on doing that. Keep on keep on asking questions. Keep on sending in. Keep on like let's keep asking questions. Let's keep seeking God's counsel. Let's keep seeking His word. Let's keep seeking to grow together as we seek to walk through these things. So we just uh, we thank you again for for sending these questions. We we love to to get to wrestle through these together, and, and we invite you. Uh, maybe maybe we'll have another Q and R in the future. So uh, yeah, thanks guys. Thank you guys so much. We love you guys.